Well, welcome to the uh, final sermon in our sermon series that we kicked off back back in the fall. First week of the series, we had a chilly cook-off, and now here we are at the start of, of Christmas next week. And so today we're going to look at one final disciple. If you're tracking along, you know there's one left, and that one guy left is Simon the Zealot. Now, we've covered a lot of ground over these last number of months. And so I thought, you know, before we jump into Simon the Zealot and the rest of today's message, I thought, you know, it's really important to go back on what we've learned, right? And, and youth, like what happens at school when you go through a unit and you have a few weeks of lessons, at the end of that lesson, there's always a test. Well, let's have a test. So, so I got a pop quiz for you today. A little bit of information about the disciples. If you've been with us, hopefully you'll know the answers. If not, you can go back and listen to the messages. Uh, this is not the type of test you need to hand in. It's not one that you're going to get graded on unless you're a pastor. Then I will be expecting the results on my desk tomorrow morning. But <laughs> we'll see how those go. So just a little bit of fun, though. Recapping some of the things we've covered the last 11 weeks so far. Let's see if you can uh, remember some of the answers to these things. Number one. What was Peter and Andrew's profession? Was it a fisherman, tax collector, carpenter, or were they thieves? Fisherman. Right, fisherman. Okay, same idea. Uh, what was Matthew's profession? Fisherman, tax collector, carpenter, or thief? Tax collector, right. You will get part marks for thief, though, if, <laughs> if you want to put that on there. Okay, another one. So which, which disciple brought the boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus? Peter, John, Andrew, James the Lesser. Andrew. We're doing great. Fantastic, guys. This is good. Yeah, Andrew did that. He was the bringer, the, re, the revealer. That was week two that we went through that. And, and Andrew, the revealer, loved to bring people to Jesus to reveal Jesus to them. Okay. Now, which one of these people is not one of the 12 disciples? Nathaniel, James, Luke, or Jude? Luke. Luke's not. Jude is a little nickname for somebody. But um, you can go back to Thaddeus week, things like that. Um, Luke, no, Luke wrote a gospel. He, uh, he wrote the book of Acts as well. But all, as he opens up his gospel, he opens up the book of Acts, well, he talks about how he went around and researched. He researched eyewitness accounts, but he himself didn't have the eyewitness accounts. He wasn't one of the original 12. So uh, next, how many uh, sets of brothers were part of the 12 disciples? One, two, three, or four? So there's two. Now there's potentially, there's argued that there's a third one, but that's not officially agreed upon. But there is, uh, is two. So we've got Peter and Andrew and James and John, right? Sons of thunder. All right, two more to go. So the, who, which disciple lived the longest? John, Philip, Thomas, or Judas? It's not Judas. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, John. John's the answer because John is the only one who died of natural causes. Uh, he was... You know, he went through some of the same persecutions the other uh, disciples did, but he was shipped off to an island, and he wasn't, he wasn't killed or wasn't martyred. Uh, okay, last one. What did Jesus and the disciples have for breakfast when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection by the Sea of Galilee, when Peter was reinstated? We covered this last week. Did they have praisin bran? Did they, did they have life cereal or alphabets or bread and fish? I think they would have had praisin bran, personally. <laughs> but no, yeah, they had bread and fish. That was, that was last week. <laughs> All right. So well done on your, on your test there. 
So there's one disciple that did not come up anywhere during the quiz, and that was, well, it was Simon the Zealot. And I thought that's only fair because we haven't covered that yet. But at the same time, this is another one of those cases where I just wouldn't even know what really to quiz you on because we know so little about Simon the Zealot. What we do know about him is that he's included in all the lists of the disciples, okay? He, um, from the very first list in the Gospels, but then also in the final list they give uh, of the disciples that were gathered in the room at, at, the, uh, at, at Pentecost, those who were in Jerusalem at that time, he's still included in that list. So we know he was with Jesus for the full time and faithfully followed and was discipled by Jesus for the full three plus years that they're together. But one of the most curious things about Simon is they attach this word zealot, onto his name. And it's not really known why or what that refers to. Some people think, well, maybe it's to differentiate him from, from Simon Peter. So it's just a designation that way. Others think there may be a deeper meaning to it. For example, the word zealot literally can be understood as a person who is uncompromising in their spiritual or in their political ideals. Now, at the time of Jesus, this could be used for a person who is just an adamant defender of the Old Testament law and of Jewish traditions. They, they were zealous for the things of God of that time. And they would speak up against anything that deviated from, from Jewish culture or Jewish teachings or customs. Another way the word zealot was used was in reference to a radical uh, zealot party, which was a group of guys who, who took the zeal to a whole nother level of, of aggression and violent opposition to Roman occupation in the region. And they would use like guerrilla warfare tactics where they had these special hidden daggers in their cloaks and they would, they would kind of dole out justice wherever they felt it was needed within, within the capital in Jerusalem. And so they took it to another level. But without getting into all the history and, and all the dates of these different movements when they did and didn't happen, it's pretty much agreed upon that, that Simon had this religious zeal. That he wasn't part of a radical factionist group. Sometimes if you see a movie from that period, it'll be portrayed that way. But it's, it's really believed as more of a religious zeal that he had. Where he had this deep devotion for the things of God. A deep devotion for God's character, for, for his truth, for his love. And, and this zeal propelled him following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to spread the good news throughout regions like, like throughout Egypt and up into Persia, where eventually he too was killed because he refused to worship the sun god of the area that he was ministering in. And because he refused to worship the sun god and kneel before that idol, they, they killed him in rather violent and, and graphic ways. But this zealousness is an interesting trait. You see, because zealousness can be used for good, but can also be used in a way where it causes damage. Paul wrote about this briefly to the church in Galatia, where he said, it, it is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. Now, every religion has people who are on both the negative and the positive side of zeal. And you know these people when you meet them. When you encounter somebody, regardless of their faith background, who is on that negative side of having religious zeal, it seems like they're always intent on upon offending. Or even if they have a, a, a position or a point of view, you want to agree with them, but the way they go about it, it makes you want to actually push back from them a little bit and, and not be associated with them because they, they tend to respond and express themselves in such controversial manners. And when you find these people throughout society, you'll definitely find them on Facebook, especially if you go into the comment sections, you'll find them on there. What ends up happening is they, they tend to create a lot of enemies. They tend to injure people in the process of, of defending what they so passionally believe, which, which is troubling because they're actually trying to 
put forth a position they're passionate about and draw people towards it, but in fact, they actually push people away from it. And in the end, we clearly know what they're against, but we have a hard time often knowing what they're for. But there's this positive side of religious zeal as well. And you know a person like this when you encounter them too. Because when you see a person who is this positive sense of religious zeal, their passion is just undeniably contagious. And it's so easily transmitted by simply coming into contact with other people. Jesus was like this. Jesus had this, this, this sense of, of zeal about him, of, of charisma, some people would refer to it as. But whatever it was, people were drawn. Crowds were drawn to him. And they were affected and infected by his grace and by his truth. And the disciples were not immune to this. The, the disciples, when they were first called together, they were kind of a motley crew of guys, of, of just average guys from diverse backgrounds and, and diverse personalities and characteristics and abilities, very much like, like the gathering we have here. There's a lot of uniqueness in the room that we have here with us. And we're all brought together, however, under the banner of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of the disciples' time with Jesus, something had changed, though. And that's what we've been walking through and talking about in little bits and pieces these last 12 weeks is, is what is this change that happened? And it amounts really to a new way of thinking. It amounts to a new passion within their hearts that led to a new way of acting in the world around them. To the point where they become so zealous for the things of God that it propels them to go into the world in the power and in the authority of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. And so today, as we conclude this series, I want to wrap this all up. I want to bring it all together and put a nice little Christmas bow on top of it, if you would, by summarizing what that change looked like for them. But then also asking the question, what happened to them? What happened to those original 12 men who changed the world, starting with their time with Jesus? Could the same thing happen to us? Could the same thing happen to us? That we then too could go forth and impact the world for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the kingdom he came to reveal. And so by the time we're finished here today, I hope that you will remember who Jesus is, our position in Christ, and our calling in Christ. Those three things. Who Jesus is, our position in Christ, and our calling in Christ. Because this is the basis of the change that happened within the disciples. And it has been the central purpose of this whole series. So to begin with. We need to remember who Jesus Christ is. See, the disciples had an understanding of who Jesus was, but this gradually increased over time. When each of them was first called, they were aware of Jesus. They, you know, his healing and his teaching ministry was, was hard to miss. It was, it was renowned throughout the regions. But they could not accurately say that they actually knew him. Now, in short order, they came to understand him as the Messiah, but that was problematic as well because one enduring challenge that they had throughout most of their time with Jesus is that their own ideas of what that word Messiah meant really infiltrated how they understood, anticipated, and what they expected to have happen. They firmly held to this belief that not only was Jesus the religious Messiah they were waiting for, but he was also a political Messiah. And one way or another, they were going to take back control of that region from the Roman occupation that they were experiencing. And, and that's why 
when Jesus talked about his impending death, on, on numerous occasions he'd say, guys, there's a day coming when, when I'm going to die and, and I'm going to leave you. When he would talk about these things, it was not just troubling for them, but it was confusing for them as well because it didn't match their ideal of what they had established Jesus to be. And John shares a bit of insight into this in John 12 when he says, at first the disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they then realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had to be done to him. You see, after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples' eyes and their minds are then fully open to understanding who he is. Because it is not possible to fully comprehend who Jesus is apart from the cross and his resurrection. And the same can be true for us today. Who do you understand Jesus to be? And how you answer that question and the information that you choose to access to inform how you answer that question has significant impacts. Maybe, maybe you see Jesus as the, the kids' study Bible Jesus. You probably had that children's Bible where it's that picture of Jesus with long blonde hair and blue eyes and perfect skin complexion and a big smile holding a lamb. Maybe that's the idea of Jesus that, that stays with you. Maybe you have more of this idea of a, of a buddy Jesus. You know, me and Jesus, we're, we're, we're buddies. We're always smiling, and it's always the thumbs up, and we're just good pals. Maybe it's teacher Jesus, where he's a man of history who had the, the, the best words, right? The best words to live by. And he brought this new social order, and we can just kind of pick and choose which of his teachings we're going to apply to our lives because they're all so good. And we'll just pick and choose the ones that fit. Or maybe it's prophet Jesus, where he has spiritual significance. And, and yes, there's authority and there's respect that's deserved there, but, but there's limits to that. Like, let's not go too far with that one. Or maybe you see Jesus as the risen Messiah. You see him as the Son of God who was sent to die for the sins of the world and who raised from the death victorious and was exalted to the highest of heavens. You see, the first, like the first disciples, from the time you hear the name Jesus to the time that you place your trust in him to the time that you come to be a follower of him, we need to constantly remember who he is. And we need to be cautious to avoid imposing our own ideas upon who he is. Because he never left that open for us to decide. He never intended for us to have this openness where we could pick and choose if it's Bible Jesus, buddy Jesus, teacher Jesus, prophet Jesus, or risen Savior Jesus. He clearly and boldly told us himself who he is, where he said, I am the light of the world, declaring that he brings light to the dark places of your life. He says, I am the vine, meaning that he is the true source of life that all of us need to tap into. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, promising that he can provide a means of salvation and the life that is to come. And most brazenly, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, because nobody can come to the Father except through me. He also claimed that he was able to forgive sins. He claimed he was able to release you from your troubles and your burdens and to set you free. And if there's any confusion of what all of this means, he simply declared in John 10, I and the Father am one. Saying that I am God incarnate. Such bold statements demand a response. Such bold statements about who he claimed to be demand a response. Which is why in the famous words of C.S. Lewis, he said this. He says, you must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has never left it open to us, and he never intended to. He was very clear about who he was and about who he is. So let us remember who Jesus is. He is the Son of God who came to reveal the kingdom of heaven. He is the Son of God who came to die for your sins and for mine. He is the one who came that we may have eternal life here, now, and forever. And he is the one who came to set you free from that which ensnares you from that which trips you up and makes you stumble, from that which makes you riddled with guilt and shame. He came to set you free from that because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. This is our Jesus. He is the risen, ruling, and reigning Christ. And that's the first thing we need to remember if we are to become zealous for the things of God if that zealousness is gonna to start to be a spark in our lives that can be fanned into a flame, the first thing we need to understand is who Jesus is. And then in light of that, we then need to go a step further and we need to remember who we are as his followers. You see, throughout the time that Jesus was with his disciples, he promised them transformation, that there's this transformation that will come with the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, their understanding of what that meant was lacking as well because quite often they focused on the external things. They focused upon the action-orientated part of the ministry. And on occasion, on a number of occasions, we see them trying to live this out and to achieve this under their own power, in particular, Peter. I think that's why a lot of people so kind of just relate to Peter. He's trying to, he's trying to work it out all the time and trying to, he's fumbling and stumbling, but he picks himself back up as he tries to work this out all the time. But here's the thing, it's not about what we can muster. It's never been about what we can muster, what our confidence in ourselves, confidence in our abilities and our past successes, it's never been about that. What, what they missed is that it's always been about Jesus. And it's always been about what he has done in us that empowers what can be done through us. It's always been about him. And in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, he reminded these, these believers of the basis of this transformation that, that Jesus had promised to them when he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. If we see our growth and our growing um, relationship with Jesus as something that we bring about through better behaviors, through better acts of service, through higher levels of acts of kindness, through pearls of wisdom we pick up and, and try to live out, if, if that is the basis of how we try to grow in Christ and how we try to bring about this transformation on our own, I can promise you one thing. Your Christian walk will be very frustrating. It'll be very frustrating because you'll be looking to what you can accomplish upon your own. And, and it, may, it may have Christian words attached to it, and, and you may be able to find scripture verses to, to back up what you're trying to do. But if the source is tapping into yourself alone, I promise you it's going to be frustrating because it's not from us, it comes from God. 
You see, discipleship is the inner work in which God produces within people who place their trust in him. This then leads to a changed heart, which leads to changed character, which leads to changed passions. And when God gets a hold of the heart and is allowed to do his work in the heart of a person, suddenly those changes within us that he creates leads to different external actions and behaviors and characteristics. But the source is found in him. It's not found in our efforts. What is our role? Our role is to be committed. Our role is to be united with Christ in faith and to open ourselves up to that work so that it can happen. Now, if you're a control freak like me, that's hard. That's tricky. Because we think we've always got a plan, we've always got an idea, we always know what the next step to do is. And it seems so countercultural and ludicrous at times that if I let go, something might happen better than I could do on my own. There's a lot of people who, who wrestle with control. But the reality is if we let go, then we can let God do that work within us, to open ourselves up, to have eyes and ears to hear and to see and then to respond and to move in the direction he wants us to move in. It, it's not about just passivity to the point of inactivity. It's about passivity to allowing him to propel and to move so that we jump into the flow of his river. And if we allow ourselves to go with the flow of the river, he'll propel us to great places. So if we are new creations, if we have a new identity, as Paul explains, who are we in Christ? Who truly are we in Christ? How can we define and understand that? Well, one of the best descriptions I've ever come across was, was in a book written by Neil Anderson a number of years ago called Victory Over the Darkness. And in this book, he lists 27 scriptural aspects of your identity in Christ. 27 expressions of who you are when you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And he gives these because so often people need to be reminded. People need to have these sometimes daily affirmations to give them confidence and to give them a sense of reassurance of who they are in Christ. And I'll give you a sampling of who he says we are, of your identity if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, in Christ you are accepted. You are God's child. You are a friend of Jesus Christ. You are justified and you are accepted by God. You are united with the Lord. You were bought with a price because you have value and you belong to God. You have been forgiven of your sins. You are complete in Christ and have complete access to the throne of grace upon which Jesus Christ sits. In Christ, you are secure where you are free from condemnation, you can have the confidence to, that he will complete the good work that he has already started in you, that you can be secure, that you cannot be separated from the love of God by anything in this world, that you have been established, you have been anointed, and you have been sealed. You are a citizen of heaven. There is no spirit of fear within you. Instead, because you are in Christ, you have a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. But in Christ, you are also significant because you are God's temple the place in which he dwells. You are a minister of reconciliation. You are God's workmanship. You may approach God with the freedom and the confidence that comes from being a child of God. You are an heir with God. You are co-heirs with Christ. You have been a chosen, you have been appointed, and you will bear good fruit in Jesus Christ. That is who you are in Christ. It is not about what you have done. And it is not about what has been done to you either. That determines who you are. 
Rather, it is who you are in Christ that determines what you do and how you live. That is your identity which is not achieved because it is received. And do not base your life upon any circumstances, what others may say about you, what your own destructive thoughts may say about you, but rather base your life and your identity upon what God says about you. And these things I've read are the things he says about you. Because who you are in Christ is who he says you are. Who you are in Christ is who he made you to be. And if you need to review these and study them, these, these sheets will be available at the kiosk following the service that will list them out with the scripture references and further identification. And if you need that on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on a momentary basis, if you have a friend who needs to be reminded of who they are in Christ, pick one of those up and pray these things over them, offer them to them, remind them that in Christ we are accepted, we are secure, and we are significant because of what he has done for us and in us. So, if we remember who Jesus Christ is, and if we remember who we are in Christ, I hope there's some zeal that starts to build within us so that we're able to then remember the final one, which is our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the disciples had anticipations and ideas of what this meant, too. They knew this kingdom of God was coming. And, and they thought that that meant for them, because they're on the inside, they got the inside track on this one, that that means privilege and it means position for themselves. And, and so much so that on a few occasions, this would actually lead them to have arguments with each other over who is the best disciple, who is the greatest disciple. You know, James and John would come and they'd, they'd sneak up to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we got something to ask you. Can I sit at your left and my brother at your right when you come into glory? But then the other disciples hear about this, and, and they're furious that the guys would ask for such things. How could they beat us to the punch task for that? Because then they start arguing amongst themselves. Well, those guys shouldn't sit left and right. We're better than those guys are. What do you mean you're better than those guys? I'm better than you. And it starts to, this disagreement starts to happen among who is the greatest disciple. Did you know that this even happened at the, Lord, at the Last Supper? If you read Luke's account... After Jesus announces he's going to die and one of them's going to betray him, the conversation turns to, well, well who in the world could betray Jesus? Surely when I, wouldn't, I wouldn't betray him. You wouldn't betray him. Who's going to be the betrayer? And this discussion of, of who could it be, not me, turns into it couldn't be me. Why? Because I'm the best. At the Last Supper, moments before Jesus is arrested, that is where the conversation heads to. You see, from their understanding, Jesus and the coming kingdom meant that because they had committed themselves to him, because they had served so faithfully for so long, that the season of retirement was upon them. And in the season of retirement, they had earned comfort and reward. But every time Jesus encountered this view, he challenged it. You know, in fact, his very life confronted this perspective. Because it's not a God-honoring perspective for them or for us to ever hold in our lives. That we have somehow served, done our time, and now I can sit back in retirement from my spiritual walk. Our spiritual walk never ends. You see, Jesus' life, to his final breath, exemplified humility of one who did not come to seek comfort and reward. But instead, being the very nature God, did not consider equality, the status and position, something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he humbled himself, making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. 
All of us in our lives have, have teachers and coaches and bosses who have this role of authority over us. It, it's just part of the world that we live in. And Jesus was supportive of authority within structures that we need to abide by and understand. There's nothing wrong with that. And all of us are familiar with that. But are you familiar or have you ever had the privilege of working for a coach, a boss, a teacher who came to serve alongside you? Have you ever had that happen? Where this person would stay after school to give you extra help of their own free time. Who would come in a couple hours early to coach the team. Who would come down and, and sweep, sweep the floor. Who would shovel the walk. Who, who would see you behind in, in getting your orders out in the warehouse and would pack boxes beside you. The type of person who would take you for lunch and really wanted to get to know you. Who, who cared about you. Wanted to know your, your family and your kids' names, what was happening in their lives. Really wanted to get to build a relationship with you. If you've ever had a teacher, a coach, a boss like that, you know there's something special about them. You'd also know there's something infectious about a person like that that makes you want to not only serve them and be in a relationship with them, but to be like them. You see, rather than, than seeking comfort and reward, the disciples came to view Jesus in, in all that he taught in light of the cross in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that cross was not known for, for some hierarchy or from special privilege. It was not a special privilege to be upon the cross. The cross was a symbol of pain and suffering. But in the life and in the hands of Jesus, it also became a symbol of sacrifice and service to others. Where Jesus Christ, who as we mentioned a few moments ago, God incarnate, God with us, chose to become a servant to hang upon the cross, not just because of the pain and suffering that was part of it, because he turned it into a symbol of sacrifice and service as an example for us. Matthew 20 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And following the death of Jesus Christ, the disciples were thrown into a sense of disarray. They, they, they were in this moment of, of, of confusion and uncertainty of what to happen. But then when they saw the resurrected Christ, they understood. They understand who he was. They understand who they were in him. And that zeal began to spark and fan into a flame again. And they received and remembered again their recalling. Their calling to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. And as we've mentioned on a weekly basis throughout this series, they all went out and they all served and they all gave their lives to their dying breath in the service of Jesus Christ. So as followers of Christ, here and now and in this place, we too need to remember our calling. Because we too have a calling. We've been called to serve others with our whole lives. To come alongside others. To encourage, to support to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And this calling, I think, can be summarized in three steps. First of all, we have the calling where Jesus says, come to me. We're called to come to him. There's this call to believe in him. This call to place our trust in him. This call to come to him to make him the Lord and the Savior of our lives. You may have heard that famous saying from, from many, many years ago that everybody has a God-shaped hole in their heart. 
And lots of us have and maybe even still currently are trying to fill that hole. You know there's that void in your life and you try to fill it with the things of this world. You try to fill it with the wisdoms and the principles that the world has to offer. And it leaves you empty. Sometimes it leaves you even more burdened than when you first started seeking. You see, Jesus came, lived, taught, died, and then was raised victorious over sin and death so that he could become the only one that perfectly just plugs into that God-shaped hole in your heart. That is what you've been looking for. He is the only one who has been qualified to fill it because he is the only one who is the Savior for us. But on this journey of life, we also pick up all sorts of baggage. We pick up wounds. We, we pick up stress and strife. But Jesus not only came to save to be your Savior. He came near to you so that we can come near to him. So that we can walk with him through those times. So that we can come to him and have him share in that burden with us. And be our Lord as well. The first call everybody has upon their life is to come to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their lives. He then says this. He says, then we need to die to ourselves. That whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. What does that mean? That means that we need to cease making ourselves the object of our life and our actions. It's not about the self. It means we need to allow the will and the character and the heart of God to reign in the self, to reign in our lives. That there needs to be this zeal for the things of God rather than the passions of our own heart. And, and I know that's not easy. All of us, myself included, struggle with this. Because when we take this step and we decide to die to self and to take up our cross, the self continually wants to regain control. The self doesn't just go away quietly. It wants to come back in and impose itself time and time again, which is why each morning at times we need, to, we need to open our eyes and before we even put our feet out of the bed, sometimes we need to say, Lord, today I die to self. Sometimes it is such a strong call and a pull back to the self that that is how we need to start our days. You know, one of the best ways we can do this to, to keep ourselves on the right track, and we've talked about this a few times, we're going to keep talking about it, is, is by having this 15 minutes a day, this chair time with God. You have your space, you have your place, and you spend even just 15 minutes. If you can do more, fantastic, but carve out 15 minutes of reading the scriptures, of just praying, and setting yourself up, especially at the start of the day. I, I do mind at the start of the day because I need that reminder. I need to be centered at the start of the day because I know the pressures of the day are waiting for me. And I need to start with that each day if I'm ever going to be successful at dying to self on a daily basis. Once we've come to the Lord, we've taken these steps to die to self, Jesus also tells us the third calling, which is to go to the nations. Jesus Christ left us a mission. He left us a mission. He passed the torch to us to continue his work. And that mission, that, that, that purpose is to go to all the world, locally, regionally, and globally, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. John Piper put it this way once. He says, we have three options. We can go, we can send, or we can disobey. Those are the three options because the, the mission was not watered down. It was very, very clear. We can go, we can send, we can disobey. And this is the mission of every church of all places, of all times. The mission of every church was to go and to make disciples. 
And this is stated within the mission of West Meadows as well, where our mission statement is to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ. In all that we do, our sole purpose for existing, our guiding principle is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we are going to be successful in doing so, it doesn't just count upon the pastors and it doesn't just count upon the elders. It means that we need all of you as well. We need all of you to understand that these are the callings that exist for all of us to come to Christ, to accept him as Lord and Savior of our lives, to daily die to self that we may live for him and have his will, his character, his desire in our hearts that then propels us to actions and that one great action he told us all to do is to go to the nations, to tell the people the good news about who Jesus Christ is. And we need you to be part of that. It is all hands on deck for this mission because there is no sitting back. Each person here in this room has a kingdom purpose. Everybody here has a kingdom calling that was given to you and for you by God because he needs you to do your part. There are people, there are opportunities, giftings and resources that God has given to you that he needs you to use. When we talk about wanting the church to grow, when we talk about wanting to see people come to faith, uh, wanting to participate in baptisms, that's all of us. That starts with us fulfilling this part of the mission. Because there are people that only you have a relationship with, only you have access to share your faith with. There are people that perhaps only you can invite to Alpha. Only you can invite to the Christmas event this weekend. There are those people here who have abilities to work with kids, and I'm so thankful for you. Because it's such an important ministry, but it's also one that I do not have a gifting in with the kids. But I know Kelsey needs your help. I know she needs your help Sunday mornings, and she certainly needs it Wednesday evenings with the Boost program. And if that is an ability that you have, there's opportunity to come to these things to help raise up the next generation that we need to be investing in so richly. There are resources that God has placed into your hands. All of us have some sense of possessions that we can use and give for his purposes. All of us are called to tithe and to give back to the Lord the first fruits, that first portion as an act of faith, as an act of worship. It's not about paying bills. It's about worshiping. When we tithe, we can worship with our money. But some people have been so richly blessed that God has positioned you that you can fund ministries and support ministries and missionaries above and beyond others. There are people who have passions in their hearts and desires to go to places that other people have never even heard of for the sake of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know what it is in your life and in your situation, but I do know that you have a calling to go to the nations, locally, regionally, and globally, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. To either go, send, and I pray we won't disobey. You see, we share in this calling that the same 12 disciples had. These men who went out and changed the world. And there is still so much work for us to do in this sense. And the disciples started as a diverse diverse group of people, like so many of us here. But as they spent their time together with Jesus, they came to understand who he is. They came to understand who they were in Christ. And their zeal for the things of God built up in their lives and propelled them to be on mission to their dying breath. So as this series and and as this service comes to a close, it's my prayer that we will remember, that we will remember who Jesus is.
that we will remember who we are in Jesus. And that we would certainly remember the mission that he's given us. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. That you are God in flesh. That you are Jesus, the one who saves. You are the one who starting next week we are going to start singing about and talking about and praising who came in the form of a babe. We thank you, Lord, for your teachings and, and for your life of sacrifice and ministry as an example to us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to come to you. We have opportunity to come to you to make you the savior of our lives. Lord, to those who are here today who have not made that confession of faith, I pray that in this moment they would feel that sense that that hole in their heart that needs to be filled, that right now in this moment, Lord, that they would say, yes, Jesus, I need you to come in and fill that hole. Nothing else is fit, nothing ever will fit but you, Jesus. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want to start walking with you. I know what it means to be complete and to be in you. God, I thank you that we can live our life in relationship with you and that you bring about this transformation in us that propels us to, to great acts of faith, to great acts of work, not for our own sake, not by our own sake, but by you, through you, and for you, Jesus. God, I pray we would each have an understanding of what that mission looks like in our lives and that we would live that out in the way, in the means, and in the lives of those around us, that we truly would be faithful to go and to send all the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name.